message today and lift up those who uh, are victims of the aftermath of the hurricane. Amen. How y'all doing this morning? Just a couple of things before I get started. I just want to add something to the announcements. In a few weeks, we don't have all the details yet of the specific time, but because of COVID, we haven't been able to do the Lord's table in a long time. So we're looking for a way to do that in a few weeks, maybe two weeks, maybe three, maybe four. We don't know. It, it will combine also like a live acoustic worship set here that we will still be streaming to people at home. We're going to figure out a way to give instruction to people at home of how to do the Lord's table, but we're trying to put all that together. We just wanted you guys to know at home and here that that's on our mind, that we haven't done that in a long time, and it's, we're trying to figure out a way around it. It might be nice to have a small little uh, acoustic worship set here one week when we do that. You'll hear more details about it. we got to work out the technical side of it and the logistics, so just wanted to give you that heads up. <clears throat> um, so we're in Mark <clears throat> number 44, and uh, let me turn this on. There we go. Mark number 44, so the title of this message is Divorce Court. Um, you know, last week I was preaching on drowning and hell and amputations. This week Jesus teaches on divorce. I already missed last week on drowning and hell and amputations. I wish I could just go back and do that again. <clears throat> but <clears throat> have you ever, I think there's, a, there's an aspect of this teaching on divorce that Jesus gives that that many people don't grasp. They think that Jesus' main topic in this is divorce, and actually it's not. That's what's interesting. So we'll get to that in a moment. But have you ever tolerated something that you hate just for the benefit of someone you love? Um, something you really don't like, but you show patience for because you have a bigger picture in mind, which is this relationships with someone that you that you value and you cherish. I remember early on in our marriage with Laura and I, uh, we were still living in South Carolina, and, you know, I'm a big Bucks fan, and I didn't get to see the Bucks very often. But then Charlotte got a team, the Panthers. And the first year, they were actually playing their games at Clemson University, which is only like an hour away from our house. And so we got tickets. There were some Panther fans, and then I'm a huge Buck fan, and my wife was not a fan of anyone. I mean in football, not of anyone. <laughs> so we went to this Bucks game in Clemson. I missed going to Bucks games. It had been so long. I had so much pent-up Joe energy when it comes to football. I was going nuts on every great play, every bad call. I was yelling at the refs. Now, yes, they couldn't hear me because I was way up in the top of the end zone. But in spirit, I know they felt me. The Bucks won that game. I had a blast. It was great. The atmosphere, the pageantry, the yelling, and the win. Laura hated it. <laughs> Actually, no, she hated the way I was at the game. She didn't hate the game. <laughs> but she was there at the game with me for one reason, because she loves me. Otherwise, she would have never tolerated sitting next to me in a stadium. Can you just imagine the stuff that God must put up with when it comes to his relationship with the church? 
I mean, can you imagine? Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> and he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test Jesus and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And later in the house, they were alone now at this point, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And what was that you said about divorce? And Jesus answered, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. If she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So there's a lot here. Don't worry, we're going to go through all that, and I'll give you a little bit of a precursory teaching on divorce, but it's really not the point that Jesus is making here. So to understand what Jesus is actually teaching, we have to break down. It's so crucial. If you try to teach this passage without understanding the history, you're going to lead a lot of people astray. So let's look at the historical. I want to talk about the divorce trap. First of all, I want to give you a little bit of first century history about divorce. Everybody loved divorce. It reminds me of that show, Everybody Loves Raymond. They could have made a show. Everybody loves divorce in the first century. Divorce in first century Israel specifically was habitual, common, celebrated, frequent, and very popular. It was a beloved, if you can imagine, a beloved cultural institution. It was a rampant practice among everyone. In fact, it was modeled mostly by the elites. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests and the scribes. Of course, there was nuance. The, the Sadducees, like Herod, for example. Herod was a Sadducee. Whatever, dude, just divorce. Who cares why? Do whatever you want. The Pharisees, of course, were more conservative on the surface and more righteous about divorce. Make sure your divorce is legal and biblical. You had to have a clear biblical reason for divorce. She is failing as a wife in some way. What they really meant is in any way. You're good. Virtually all rabbis, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, they all basically arrived at the same practical stance. They just took a different rationalization. As a matter of fact, the most beloved Pharisee rabbi who died about 20 years before Jesus' public ministry began, his name was Hillel, he declared, this is a conservative Pharisee, you can rid yourself of your wife for any rational indecency. What was rational, you say? She didn't keep a clean house? Divorce. Bad cook? Divorce. Can't have children? Divorce. Found someone better? Divorce. This was a normal thing in this century. Habitual among priests, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, and the common people, everyone, everywhere. Everybody had a vested interest in divorce being acceptable to some degree. And the result was an exceedingly immoral culture that became very, very difficult on women and their children. 
So that's the history. Fun, huh? See why I miss drowning and amputations and stuff like that? All right, next step. I want to talk about a crowded rest stop. See, Jesus now is heading toward Jerusalem. He's heading toward this final showdown. He's moving through Perea. And he would be in this region right here for three months. And that's what Mark chapter 10 is. It's a summary of this three-month ministry in his pathway towards Jerusalem. There are many Jews right now currently in this region. It's a very popular rest stop for pilgrims that are on their way to Jerusalem. For the feast season, it's a big one. This was that moment in time. And Perea, this area, is actually held and ruled by Herod. Antipas, he's the one, by the way, if you remember early on, imprisoned John the Baptist when John the Baptist condemned what? Herod's divorce and remarriage of his wife's, of his brother's wife, who also was his cousin. This was a very well-known event, because remember, John the Baptist, before Jesus, there was none more popular in the region than John the Baptist. So when John the Baptist was arrested and later on beheaded, everyone knew about it and everyone knew why. Because John had a huge following. This event is not forgotten. Remember, he divorced his wife, who was also a relative, forced his brother to divorce his wife, and then married his brother's wife. And John says, dude, you can't do that. I mean, there's more to learn about Perea. We'll talk about a little bit later. But that's what is relevant for you to understand where this is taking place. Herod would have a lot of spies and ears all over this region. And so what happens is these Pharisees are laying a cancel culture trap. See, the Pharisees desperately want Jesus destroyed. They want his popularity undermined. And more than anything, they would love to get him off the streets. So this divorce question is not some random question, like out of the blue, like, You know, Jesus, you're very wise. Can you tell us about divorce? No, this was an intentional scheme by these Pharisees at the right time, at the right place, using the right topic, a hot-button topic, because of what had just happened with John the Baptist a couple years earlier. See, they're trying to trick Jesus into taking a very public, unpopular stand on divorce in Herod's region during a pilgrimage so everybody would hear about it. They want to trick Jesus into taking a very radical view on divorce that would have two effects. First, it would make Jesus appear to be in conflict with all the admired rabbis and the Pharisees and the Sadducees who had declared divorce acceptable. They would love for the crowd to see Jesus as this rigid hardliner, and for that reason they would turn away from him for taking this unpopular cultural stand. They're trying to get Jesus canceled, like the cancel culture does today, when people are deemed politically or culturally or socially incorrect. The second goal would be they want the Roman-backed Sadducee King Herod to hear about this and put Jesus in prison just like he did John the Baptist. This is very clever thinking, right? Because they're in Herod's territory. It's a very crowded time where everybody's going to Jerusalem for the feast season. Herod has eyes and ears everywhere. So you can see why this particular region and this particular time and this particular topic is a very ingenious trap. So that's the history. Let's look at the spiritual. What about Jesus? What does he do? 
and why and how does he do it? So divorce isn't really the issue. Divorce is really the symptom here. So what does Moses say? Jesus points to Moses, and this is a, you know, out of context, it can be quite a troubling passage. What does he say? See, Jesus knows their motives. He knows they don't really care about what God says about divorce. What he does is has a brilliant response by appealing to their spiritual and public cultural pride about the law. He cuts right through all the scribes and the theological middlemen and the liberal Sadducees and the conservative rigid Pharisees, rigid in quotes. He cuts through all that and goes straight to God's word by asking a very sarcastic question. He says, have you read Moses and the law? Here's what he's really saying. You're the law experts. Don't you know what Moses says about divorce? Why would you bother asking me? In other words, he's saying, I know why you're doing this. You're trying to lay a trap for me. But I got one for you. Well, what does Moses say? Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 24, 1 to 4. <clears throat> and we'll break this down. There's several nuances. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and then she departs from his house. So there's a lot of ifs there, right? If this, if this, if this, if this, and if this, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes a divorce of certificate on her and puts her, puts it in her hand and puts it out of his house, so she's been divorced twice now, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, and then her former husband, who sent her away, wants to say, you know what, you're okay, come on back may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance. It's important, this last sentence. A lot of people look at all the first part of Moses and they skip the last part, which is crucial. You shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. What is significant about the land? It was full of Gentiles. See, the Pharisees hear Jesus' question about what is Moses saying? They think it's a hanging curveball. We got him. We're going to knock this one out of the park. There it is, Jesus. Moses says we can divorce for any indecency, anything we see. But there's a warning. If your quote-unquote indecent wife marries another, being divorced again, or the first man dies, you can't take her back. And you ask, why is Moses in the weeds on divorce here? Isn't that kind of puzzling? See, Moses was addressing a specific historical, cultural problem, habitual problem. Here's what would happen. The priests and the Pharisees back then, here's what they would do. Remember, they're in a land with, that God has given them. It's full of Gentiles. They would divorce their Jewish wives for selfish reasons. Why? So they can take some Gentile wives, some exotic women, they were trying to free themselves up. They'd marry these pagan wives for immoral motives and then divorce the pagan wife and take their Jewish wife back. But the problem is when you divorce your wife, she's destitute. She's out of your house. So she's got to get married again just so she can live. Then that guy can put her out because he wants to marry a pagan wife. And so all of a sudden, it's a big wife swap. <clears throat> And that's what Moses is actually addressing here. Did you know that? 
This was a very common practice. Go back after you divorced your Jewish wife, marry the pagan wife, have a little fun, then take your original Jewish wife back. This was all done so they could just be immoral under the blessing of marriage. It's sick. It's the disgusting wife swap game that everyone is playing, and it had been going on for hundreds of years. It got even worse in the days of Malachi. And as a result, what we see taking place is there are hardened hearts. See, Jesus had no intention on laying out his view of divorce that day. Is everything all right? Okay, come on in. <laughs> Jesus had no intention of laying out his view, his view on divorce that day. That wasn't his motivation. He just responded to this cancel culture trap by referring to Moses. He's, what he's doing is really setting up what is the real key issue. It's not really divorce. What Jesus is doing is he's revealing immorality and hypocrisy. He turns their attempted cancel culture trap into a public rebuke of their real problem, their hardened hearts. Guys, my stance on divorce isn't your problem. It's your blind, unrepentant, hardened hearts. I want to look at the word for hardened hearts that Jesus actually uses. It's a very interesting compound word. Sclerocardia. Hard-hearted, destitute of spiritual perception. That's what the word means. The one that Jesus uses to answer their question about divorce is, here's the problem, you have sclerocardia. There are two words, we're going to break it down for you. The first one is scleros. It means hard, harsh, rough, stiff. You got that image in your head, that's what scleros means. So he's saying you have a hard, hard, rough, stiff heart, cardia. We get that word cardiology. Figuratively here, this word means the thoughts and the mind. You have hard, heart, hard, harsh, rough, stiff thoughts and minds. That's what he's talking about here. Moses wasn't condoning frivolous divorce. Not at all. He's saying, look, if you're going to be divorcing like this, at least have some line of decency. Jesus is brilliant in pointing to this passage dealing with their treacherous practices of divorce, an example practiced by all of them. Moses wasn't condoning their flippant views. He is trying to curb their wickedness in some way. Here's what he says. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of your heart, he wrote this commandment. Later, the disciples want clarification. This is a widespread practice. Perhaps some of them had been divorced in this way. So I would think they'd probably want to know. Jesus makes clear how God feels about the common divorces of the day. He doesn't like it at all, and he can't stand it. So I hope you have an understanding now of what really is going on in this passage. Some people like to take this passage and make it a parenthetical passage and say, this is divorce. That is a horrible way to teach this passage. You have to understand the history and the theology before you can understand the personal. I want to talk about divorce being a symptom, 
loving the intolerant, all these things. Have you ever, this is a social media campaign, have you ever considered just how often God must tolerate your sinful heart? So I'm not going to just skip over divorce. I'm going to give you a short, cursory understanding of biblical divorce. It is there. And the the topic of biblical divorce, it's crucial. And there are some exceptions for divorce. Some of those vary from people to people. I'm not going to be teaching all about it today. I'm not trying to shy away from and understand, but that's not what Jesus' focus was in the story. He didn't go out there to say, look, today I'm going to make sure everybody knows I'm a hardliner on divorce. That wasn't his point. I'm going to give you a short summary, recognizing that each situation has its own unique challenges. There are some that want to have this very strict, hard-line view on divorce in the church, and it causes tremendous pain and burden on many people who have gone through that pain. And there are some, just like the Sadducees, whatever. Both are incorrect. The reality is, church, marriage is under constant pressure. Because both parties in every marriage are flawed. There's selfishness, there's impatience, there's sin, there's football games. <laughs> the conflict exists in every marriage. Honestly, let's be real, it's a miracle that any of us stay together. Some support divorce for any reason. Like I said, there are hardliners. But biblically, there are cases for divorce. Immorality, abandonment. Some people have made a case that Paul is talking about emotional abandonment and physical abandonment or financial abandonment. There are a lot of things. There's discussions about divorce because one is an unbeliever, one's a believer. There's a lot of things. The scripture makes exceptions for divorce. But it's not something that can be entered into lightly. The parallel passage in Matthew, by the way, Jesus gave one of these exceptions, right? He actually says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Later on, Paul talks about other exceptions when he's talking to the church at Corinth, who, by the way, we've discussed in the past, was a really kind of rough church, not good at all. They had the same problem that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were when it came to divorce. So why does Mark leave this crucial? This is important. Why does Mark leave this out of his account of this teaching on divorce? Why do you think he does that? Because Mark's focus wasn't on divorce. It's on the heart of the Pharisees. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that while God does hate divorce, he hates a lot of things. He hates lying. He hates stealing. He hates hypocrites. Right? He hates pizza with pineapple on it. There's a lot of things <laughs> that God has no patience for. We live in a fallen world, and we ourselves are fallen. All of us, divorced, married, single, we're in constant need of God's patience because of things in our life that he hates. I mean, look, if he's going to deal with people like us, He's going to have to put up with a lot of garbage. Why? Because in many ways, in many areas, we do develop hardened hearts, don't we? Hearts that look for excuses to sin, serve ourselves. And marriage is just one place 
that receives the consequences of hardened hearts. So I want to talk about the real issue that Jesus is talking about. I've titled this section, One Flesh with Jesus. See, the true personal application of this passage isn't to lay some guilt trip on people who've been through divorce. He moves well past the cursory issue that the Pharisees are trying to use as a battering ram like many people in the church do today. This isn't about righteousness in divorce. It's about the picture of how God's patience with us should bleed over into our relationship with each other, even our marriages. The metaphor of a husband and wife becoming one flesh goes far beyond marriage. It is actually a picture of the church and Jesus. He says we are one flesh. What does that mean to you? This is the level of commitment that Christ is saying he has for his church. Jesus is teaching not only the Pharisees. Remember, his focus is not the outside world now. On his way to Jerusalem, his focus is the disciples. He's saying, not necessarily to the Pharisees per se, but to the disciples, and by extension, all of us, a crucial lesson. You want to know why God hates divorce? Imagine if he treated his bride, the church, like those people back in the first century treated their wives. For any indecency, I can get rid of you and find another church. Christ is the husband. The church is the bride. Can you imagine if Christ, by example, followed theirs? That's the point. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Paul says, <clears throat> in case you thought I was just pulling that out of thin air, husbands, love your wives <laughs> as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, that's an encouragement from Paul of how a husband is to love his wife. But man, that's a pretty hard line, isn't it? How many of us have had the privilege as husbands to give up our lives? Well, none of you in here because you're still here. <clears throat> John 17, 22. The glory that you have given me, this is Jesus talking about his church. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may become one even as we are one. There's the one flesh idea. Do you understand why Jesus and God have this opinion of divorce? Because it is a picture of their relationship with us. He says we are one flesh. God, you and I are one, and I am one with them. We are one flesh. Isn't that a beautiful picture? So the reason God hates divorce is because he could never even dream about treating his church that way. This is the real issue. That we have this amazingly patient Savior. Not only do hard hearts make marriage difficult, hard hearts in any area are the biggest obstacle in the church's relationship with its husband. God, is it not? As much as God hates divorce, he desires a more close, intimate relationship with his people far more than he hates divorce. He wants it now, and he wants it in eternity. 
See, this is deep stuff, guys. This, this is the teaching on divorce in, in Mark that many aren't, aren't going to give you because they're not going to understand the fact that there is a deep historical cultural issue that Jesus is dealing with specifically. And our arrogance in judging others in this area, like divorce. And then I think about our own thought life. What about our hidden sinfulness? that nobody else in this room knows about. Maybe your spouse doesn't even know about. What about our driving? <laughs> you think God hates our driving sometimes? What about our political rabidness? How we treat others who have a different opinion than us. What about our religious facade? Some of us put one on here to come here this morning. Think God hates that just as much as he hates divorce? What about of our lack of time in prayer? Does he hate that less than divorce? See, we have developed this, this ridiculous um, scale of what God hates more and less. Yeah, God hates divorce. He also hates hypocrisy. He also hates it when we neglect our relationship with him. He also hates when we corrupt his word. He also hates it when we corrupt the gospel. There's a lot of things he has to tolerate. What about our love of money and possessions. Do you think God hates that when we put that over his kingdom? I mean, if anyone had a right to write a certificate of divorce for indecency, it would be Jesus for his church. Am I right? He's got the right. And so many things that God is tolerating from us, his bride, as we are constantly drawn away by our wandering eye, but for some reason, and, and I, I can't explain it except for grace, God patiently, constantly loves us, calls us, waits for us, reveals truth to us, all the while tolerating all our flaws. Church, how thankful are you? How thankful are you that Jesus has this infinite patience for our hard hearts. Where would we be as a church if he didn't? I'm glad he hates divorce. Otherwise, he'd have every reason to participate in it with me. He is teaching us through his toleration of something he despises, which, by the way, again, is just one in a long list. Many in the church have taken one particular sin and put it over another. Well, yeah, yeah, that's wrong, but this is really wrong. God doesn't see it that way. He tolerates all of it. Jesus is teaching us through his toleration of something he despises how committed he is to our souls. It's also a great encouragement of how committed we should be to each other as a church. Because we're one. How committed we should be to our spouses. But most importantly, to our husband, our Savior Jesus. Because I'll tell you, He's had every excuse to walk away, and he hasn't. And by God's grace, he will not.
Heavenly Father, the first thing I want to pray for this morning is I pray that this message does not create discouragement in anyone's heart and mind, but it encourages us and motivates us to appreciate even more the relationship that you have given to us through your church, through the work of Christ on the cross. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see this, this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees for what it really is. A great example of your commitment to us, even though we throw a lot of things in your face that you have to tolerate. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful. Yes, there are times where we're doing better and we have that good relationship with you. But more often than not, we do have a wandering eye. Forgive us for that. Continue to set us apart and sanctify us and change us and transform us. But in that process of transformation and glorification, I just want to say thanks ahead of time for never hating our indecency so much that you would leave us out in the cold. We love you, Jesus. And as a church... We ask that you would help us to truly understand what it means to be one flesh with you and with each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that was a hard one. I hope you were encouraged by some of the things you see there. Uh, we love you guys. We're thankful for everything that you're doing as our church continues. You'll be hearing there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes. The Shepherd team is meeting almost you know, every other week to discuss very important issues. We just want you to know we're continuing to do that. You'll be hearing communication from us in the near future. There's a lot of stuff going on, uh, especially with you, with families, with kids. We understand the burden this has put on you, and we're working on that as well. We love you guys. Thank you so much.